Well, if you've ever had the distinct joy or privilege of being a part of welcoming a child into your family, you know that it is a remarkable thing. Whether that's your own child or perhaps you have welcomed in a nephew or niece or maybe even a stranger's child in the parking lot of McDonald's. I don't know how you may have seen the joy of a new birth happening here on this earth, but it's a remarkable thing. You might even say it's a breathtaking experience. I can vividly remember coming up upon about 12 and a half years ago now when our daughters, Karis and Chloe, were born and being overcome with emotion in that moment. There was this rush of love and joy, but then also this rush of fear, overwhelmed by responsibility that these two that have been so much a part of our lives over the last nine months are are now here in this moment. These two tiny human beings are ours. That meant all of a sudden I'm supposed to be responsible. I'm supposed to be responsible for these two, their lives, their breathing, their eating, they're sleeping, they're pooping, they're everything. I'm supposed to be responsible for them. I mean, yesterday I wasn't even responsible enough to go to the grocery store and get the right things for my wife, and now I have to be responsible for these two lives. I mean, it's a crazy experience. It's totally wonderful and yet also absolutely frightening. And this new life or two are totally dependent on you and you somehow are willing to sacrifice everything for them. I mean, they can't even talk, but you want to be with them as much as possible. And they're so small and helpless. They even have that certain newborn smell. I mean, it's remarkable. It changes as, as they get a little bit older, but it's remarkable. Well, here in these opening pages of the New Testament, we step right into this exact scene as a young Mary and Joseph welcome their tiny newborn into their world. This son of theirs, however, that they now hold swaddled in their arms, isn't just any child. No, this child is the fulfillment of the promises God has made long ago. The one to whom even every Jew had been waiting, longing for. But the thing is, They wouldn't have expected this child to come in this way. The account of this birth is not only unusual for us today as we read it, it would have been unusual for them in that day as well. As Luke informs us in his gospel account, Mary gives birth to this child in a stable of all places, which could only mean one thing. This family that this child is born to is dirt poor. And yet this child, now gifted to them, would be fully dependent on them for everything. But, I mean, did they really have all that much to give this child? You see, when we often read this account during this season, we can get so caught up in the busyness of this season. You know, the the giving of gifts, the joy of spending time in family, and we might be inclined to just rush through this account and say, oh, I've heard it before. I've read this before. I read it every Christmas since I was born. And we miss the full reality of what's going on here. You see, Mary and Joseph are 
real people with real dreams and desires. They had hopes of where this new child would be born and how it would be born. And yet in this moment, everything, all their hopes, all their dreams fade as they now stare into the precious face of this child, their, their son. The smell of that newborn overtakes the stench of the cattle. This small child they now hold and lovingly calm as he cries is, is theirs. He is now with them. This is their new reality. This child, small, dependent, and helpless, is finally here. In this gospel account of the life of Christ, Matthew here in chapter 1 has intentionally highlighted the generations that came before Christ in the first 17 verses. In doing so, he's calling our attention to the fact that this child, Jesus, has come to fulfill the promise God had made to the previous generations before him. One author notes, it is significant that Matthew should mention the names of Abraham and David, as these two were two whom God had given certain unconditional eternal covenants that determined the course of the history of the nation of Israel. And so when you read the first 17 verses here in Matthew, our, our anticipation increasingly grows as we await the announcement of the one the one who would bring these covenants to completion. Oh, this is going to be a big deal. And yet, as we just heard, verses 18 through 25, this climax of the genealogy doesn't seem as climactic as we might expect, does it? I mean, at least there doesn't seem to be all that pomp and circumstances we anticipated. Now, certainly these verses contain a whole lot of significant information about this child. But really, there's a simplicity to this account. It's somewhat unexpected. And even as we turn the pages to the Gospel of Luke and read his account that many of us are perhaps more familiar with, we aren't at all met with grand narrative of, of Jesus showing up in a, in a castle or in a, a mansion the, the accounts here don't really satisfy the su suspense that we've been waiting for, at least as we've gone through the Old Testament. In fact, turn over there to Matthew 2. Notice how, or sorry, Luke 2, how it's even more modest, as Luke tells us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So as we're reading this, and as we've read the Old Testament so far, and we're anticipating, we expect this child not to be born here in Bethlehem. We would expect Jerusalem. And while they were there, verse 6, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. What's happening here? Why are these accounts of Christ's birth so, I don't know, bland? I mean, is this Jesus really not as big of a deal as we thought he might be? Well, the answer we find to these questions we might be wrestling with as we read these accounts, all depends on 
what, in fact, we are actually looking for. For you see, if we, like many of the Jews of that day, are looking for a heroic figure to stride onto the stage, who would come into this world surrounded with all kinds of pageantry and grandness to overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire, well, then these accounts do seem rather dull and unassuming. But if we're looking for the servant Isaiah prophesied of, the smallness of an infant, and the simplicity of one who would come in the likeness of man, well then these accounts are exactly that. For here's what we find in these accounts. We find that Christ has come, but he has come in humility. Christ has come, but he's come in humility, lowly and gentle in heart. Or to put it in another way, the incarnation equals humiliation. That is, when God took on flesh to dwell among his creation, he came not in magnificence, but modesty. Born not in a royal palace and majesty, but was laid in perhaps the lowest place of all, a manger. From the very first days of his life here on earth, Jesus came in lowliness. Oh, he certainly had all the power all the ability to show up here on earth as the stately warrior he, in fact, actually is. Yet instead, he came in humility. And so this morning, as we look closer at Christ in his birth here in these gospel accounts, I want to note just two specific manifestations of this humility that he came in. First of all, his withness, and then his smallness. Well, let's look first here in Matthew 1 at his withness. Now, I know you all think I just made up a word, but it's a real word. I checked. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as the state or fact of being close to or connected with someone or something. Withness. And I'm using it here with the hopes that it helps us remember something very significant about Christ's humility. Now look at verse 23 again, there in Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. With us. Ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, we have known God as one who desires a relationship with his image bearers. Mankind, created male and female, are created as image bearers to have a relationship with the creator of this universe. And we see this as he is present with Adam and Eve in the garden, walking and talking in the cool of the day, showing them how to live the best way possible, just as he created them to live in his image, in his likeness. Obviously, as we can tell from our current state of affairs in life, God's presence with mankind in this manner has come to an end. Unfortunately, only two chapters later, as Matt drew our attention to a couple weeks ago, we read of mankind's disobedience and rebellion as they eat of the tree they were commanded to not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so judgment comes for this sin. God removes his presence from them. 
The special relationship they had with God was severed and destroyed. And ever since that point in time, mankind's experience with God has been vastly altered. No longer do we know God is present with us, as Adam and Eve knew. Instead, we know God to be first and foremost distant from us. Because of our sin and because of his holiness, which cannot tolerate our sin. And so while Adam and Eve experienced this withness, this closeness, this connection, they rejected it. And yet, as we turn the pages of the Old Testament, we find God continuing to desire a closeness, a relationship with His people. He would not be deterred from His initial plan, and so time and time again, He initiates this relationship with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and then We show up in Exodus chapter 20, and we see once again he makes himself known to this chosen group of people, Abraham's descendants, Israel. He speaks to them, showing them once again how to live in the best way possible in his likeness. He gives them these ten commandments, but he also instructs them to build a place where he might once again be with his people, the tabernacle, a tent made to echo the beauty of that garden, given to remind the Israelites of God's holiness and their need for one to stand in between, a mediator. One who would make atonement through the sacrifice of a lamb so that they might once again experience his presence, his withness. Once again, however, God's people reject. They dismiss his presence and look to man-made gods and kings for satisfaction and fullness of life. As a matter of fact, as the story continues throughout the pages of the Old Testament, even with the construction of a more permanent place for God to dwell with His people, the the temple, they continue to turn to other gods, seeking their own gratification in the, the present rather than true enjoyment with Him forever. You see, the garden... The tabernacle, the temple, were all experiences of witness. God with his people. For God has always moved to be with mankind, but never before like this. 400 years have gone by. The people of Israel have experienced the distance of God through his silence. 400 years since The prophet Malachi had spoken God's word to them. And in this moment, here in Matthew 1, those years of silence and distance are shattered by a baby's cry. Oh, it's unexpected. It's unlikely. But his name says it all. Emmanuel. God with us. God with us? John We'll summarize all of this by saying, And the Word became flesh to dwell among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke records that an angel of the Lord appeared to this lowly group of shepherds on the hillside of Bethlehem, declaring, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. You see, God with us, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
for unto you a Savior. Oh, those are three breathtaking phrases explaining this withness. As we age in life, the truth is we can often lose the simple joy of being with someone. In the busyness of the daily grind, we can get caught up in all the tasks that have to be done, the bills that have to be paid, and the tyranny of the urgent. But remember when we were young, and it was different. I mean, we were different. We just enjoyed simply being with. I'm reminded of how important withness is when my daughter Kayla wants to go downstairs in our home. Uh, For those of you who have been in our home, you know it's not all that scary of a place. Now, if you were there probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe it was a little scarier. But now, it's a nice place. It's not all that scary. There's not, you know, cobwebs and terrors that lurk in the darkness down there. But for Kayla, if she's going to go downstairs, it happened even last night, she wants Megan or I to be with her. Maybe it has something to do with safety, but I don't think so. I think it's more than that for her. She wants our presence. She knows the simple joy of just being together, being with. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, explains this very idea of being present, being with when he writes in verses 6 and 7, who, speaking of Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is, when God came to dwell among us, with us, he came in our likeness. You know, there's just something about being together for my daughter, Kayla. She enjoys playing games together there in the basement. She enjoys being with one another. You see, part of this withness when Christ comes is that he is not only present with us, but he's like us. Knowing what it's like to be confined to a body of flesh, knowing hunger and thirst, knowing what hard work feels like, the emotions of losing a loved one, Jesus humbled, emptied himself so he would become like us as he is with us. Oh, Christ has come in humility from the very beginning. He is God with us. I mean, that's an amazing reality that, again, in the busyness of this season, we can just slide right past, not taking a moment to realize in this moment we are celebrating the creator of this universe humbling himself to become one of us so that he might be with us. Well, not only do we observe Christ's humility in his withness, we also see it here in his smallness. I mean, each time I hold a newborn baby, I'm amazed again at how small they actually are. I tend to forget, as children grow each and every year, what they used to be, how small their fingers used to be, how tiny my children's toenails used to be, how little they used to eat 
But that's not exactly what I mean by smallness here. Oh, certainly Jesus Christ was small as an infant lying in that manger. He had those tiny fingers and toes. But you see, an infant can't help but have those little attributes. God, the creator of all, on the other hand, he humbled himself in taking these attributes. I mean, the creator of the universe became small. That is, he became weak. He became dependent in his humanity. I mean, have you ever just stopped to think about what it must have been like to be Joseph and Mary in that moment, seeing the small one? They're they're holding him in their arms. They've been told that he's the one to whom will save. This one will save his people from their sins. Mary had been told in Luke 1 that this tiny newborn son will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. But, but now, when now he's born, there in her arms, he's fully dependent on them. They are responsible for this life, and all they've been able to provide for him in this moment is a manger. Not the mansion, a, a king, a, a great one should have. And yet, this is exactly God's plan. He came small. He came in lowliness. For he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking a form of a servant. Mark explains it like this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You see, when Christ came into this world as an infant, he was revealing in his humanity that he had come not only to be with us, but he also came to serve us. I mean, how amazing is that? Again, this busy Christmas season, we can overlook the fact that we are worshiping a God who became small, to serve you and me. The creator of the universe came in smallness by, as Mark continues, by giving his life as a ransom for many. You see, friend, Christ came not merely to live a good life, setting for us an example to follow here on earth so that you and I would be good people. No, Christ came for the cross. Christ came for the cross. And so, friend, if you're here this morning and you have never believed in Christ as your Lord, turning from your sin, your self-righteousness, even your self-effort to trust in Him as your Savior, well, let me urge you this morning to receive this free gift of salvation today in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This baby in the manger had one purpose. Good Friday. The cross. Not to make us better, but to forgive us. Oh, there's absolutely no greater gift you can receive this Christmas season. Christ came to rescue you from your rebellion against him. Christ came to restore that relationship 
you were created to have with God. Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. God with us. Oh, this is the good news of the gospel that Christ came to die for you and for me. The Apostle Paul explains it in these words. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, would you give your life to Christ today? For Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 says, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. Oh, but I am gentle. I'm lowly in heart. And when you come to me, you will, you'll find rest, true rest for your souls. You see, Christ has come for you. That is a great Christmas present from God to us. Christ with us. God with us in smallness to serve. But it's also a great Christmas present from us to our world. For those of us who call ourselves disciples of Christ, those of us who seek to follow in His ways and in doing so imitate Him because we've turned in faith, repenting of our self-righteousness, self-effort, our sin. We have this responsibility to now share this good news to the world around us. Share this free gift that God is with us. He has come. But I wonder, I wonder if we share at all the humility that we see on display here this morning. I mean, are we at all like Jesus? John Piper writes, the only people whose soul can truly magnify the Lord are people who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the condescension, oh, I can't say that this morning, the humiliation of the magnificent God. They're overwhelmed by this story. God with us. Are we who have believed and received the gift of salvation, are we so overwhelmed by the humiliation of God to be with us small like us, that we respond by imitating him in humility. In these ways as well, are, are we known for our witness? Not only was this a mark of Christ's humility in his incarnation, but we see it on full display throughout his entire life and ministry. Jesus is known for being with tax collectors, He's known for being with sinners and prostitutes, spending time with rich men, but also the beggar. And here's the thing. As we follow Jesus' life, Jesus spent time with those many of us quite often want to be distant from. Are we known for our witness or for being too good to be with. We live in a world of people that are unlike us. And so, we like to walk around and be too good 
to be with them. And yet, the God that we worship, the God that we gather together every Sunday to sing praises to, humbled himself to be with us. Are we known for our smallness? Do we imitate Christ in our seeking to serve and not be served throughout our life? Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, right before the verses we've already quoted this morning, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, as we walk through this account, we should be overwhelmed, amazed that God would be with us. Withness and smallness. But as his followers, as those who declare that we are like Jesus because we have been united to him by his shed blood on the cross and his victory over the grave, how can we not be humble like him? Closing this morning, I love how Puritan Thomas Watson speaks of Christ's humility as seen in his incarnation. Listen to what he writes. He came not in the majesty of a king, attended with his lifeguard, but he came poor. Not like the heir of heaven, but like one of an inferior descent. The place he was born in was poor, not the royal city of Jerusalem, but Bethlehem, a poor, obscure place. He was born in an inn, and a manger was his cradle, the cobwebs his curtain, the beast his companions. He descended of poor parents. One would have thought if Christ would have come into the world, he would have made a choice of some queen or personage of honor to have descended from, but he came of obscure parents. Oh, but he was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? Watson says, if our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. So from all this, learn to be humble. Dost thou see Christ humbling himself And art thou proud? It is the humble saint that is Christ's picture. Oh, Christians, be not proud. Be humble. Look on Christ, this rare pattern, and be humbled. It is an unseemly sight to see God humbling himself and man exalting himself. To see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. Oh, church, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May we be people who are marked by humility. May it be seen that we are with those who are unlike us because we bring the good news of great joy, not to just Certain people who look like us, smell like us, talk like us. No, we bring great news of great joy for 
all people. In our smallness, as we willingly give of ourselves in service to others, not just letting them serve us, but taking up that towel, washing the feet, serving our neighbors, because once again, our Savior came not to be served, but to serve. To see a proud sinner is disgusting in view of the beauty of a humble Savior. And so, Father, would you do that work in each and every one of our hearts this morning? We behold in these pages an amazing story that is no fable, not fiction. It is truth. It is fact that you, you would send your Son to be with us. And as one sent to be with us, he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for us. God, I pray for the one here this morning who perhaps is putting their trust in their efforts to be good like Jesus. For the one that has said, I can dismiss this person because I can make it on my own. God, would you in this moment grab a hold of their heart, turn it from stone to flesh, broken, that they may come to the one who is lowly and gentle in heart and find true rest for their soul. God, would you save that one today? And God, would you take those of us who are by your sovereign grace, your children, you have gifted us faith and we have turned to you, we have bowed the knee, would you give us humility? Give us this fruit of the Spirit in us that we would be with those here in our city who are unlike us, who we want to walk past, would you give us humility to be present, to share this good news with them, to go and serve, to give of ourselves so that they might taste and see your goodness. 